Welcome back to America's First 50 Years, our podcast about early American history. I'm Chris McKenna, and with me is my co-host, Kathy Conroy. Hi, Chris. In our last podcast, the Constitutional Convention concluded with delegates recommending a completely new constitution and new government structure to replace the existing Articles of Confederation. In this podcast, we are going to talk about the ratification process for the new constitution and the key debates regarding this new government structure. The newly drafted constitution envisioned the creation of a federal government in addition to the existing state governments. This federal government would have three separate equal branches. Among many other elements, the new federal government would unite the states with a central military, one foreign treaty-making authority, one currency, and one set of interstate commerce rules. The country would now become the United States of America. And at the Philadelphia Convention, the founding fathers who wanted to see this new plan of government implemented would become known as the Federalists. A few prominent Virginians Patrick Henry, George Mason, and Richard Henry Lee, among others, did not sign the final Constitution because they felt it didn't adequately protect individual liberties against a federal government that could become too large and too powerful. They wanted to make further amendments to the final document, including an individual Bill of Rights. However, after four long months in Philadelphia, most delegates had convention fatigue. They didn't want to take up any more issues and spend any more time away from home. As such, adding a Bill of Rights to the Constitution wasn't taken up by the convention, and the majority of delegates at the Constitutional Convention voted in favor of the Constitution as drafted. The group of Founding Fathers who wanted certain modifications made to the existing document, and thus weren't in favor of ratifying the Constitution as it was currently written, would become known as the Anti-Federalists, which, in hindsight, Kathy, calling them the Anti-Federalists was probably not the best branding, as this group agreed with many benefits to be gained through the formation of the federal government. However, they wanted to make further changes to the Constitution as written before ratifying it. The new Constitution, Chris, is delivered to the Continental Congress existing under the current Confederation of States. The existing Continental Congress was asked to submit the new Constitution to each state legislature for the review of the people and for the state to hold a ratifying convention that would be made up of delegates elected by the people. The purpose of the convention was for the people of each state to determine if they wanted to accept the new government. Delegates to the Constitution Convention in Philadelphia had agreed that if nine of the 13 states ratified the new Constitution, then it would become the new government structure among those states who ratified it, and a date would be set for both elections related to the new government and a date certain for the new government to begin. While a total of nine states were needed to ratify the new constitution, from a practical standpoint, it was important for the larger states, Pennsylvania, New York, Massachusetts, Virginia, 
to be on board with ratifying the new constitution or this new union of states would not be as strong or robust as was envisioned by the delegates to the convention. Thus, a key part of the journey for ratification involved convincing the larger states to vote in favor of ratification. The existing Continental Congress receives the new Constitution from the Constitutional Convention, and they have discussions and debates on how to proceed. At the heart of the debate is that the Continental Congress had only authorized the Constitutional Convention to suggest amendments to the existing Articles of Confederation, they hadn't authorized the delegates to create a whole new government. Ingeniously, when the delegates submitted the new Constitution to the existing Congress, the Convention delegates didn't ask Congress to approve this new plan of government. Rather, they just asked that the existing Congress transmit the new Constitution formulated in Philadelphia to each state for each state to hold its own convention on whether they wanted to ratify the new government. There's many moving parts to the ratification journey, Chris. One of them is that newspapers begin publishing the newly drafted Constitution along with its accompanying transmittal letter, which is signed by George Washington, who was the presiding officer at the Constitutional Convention. While Washington wanted to remain neutral, the fact that the transmittal letter introducing the new Constitution was signed by him enabled a number of citizens to look favorably at the new Constitution. Remember, George Washington at that time was a national hero. As the newspapers publish the new Constitution, a lot of discussion and debate begins among the citizens. Four states organized their conventions very quickly after the Continental Congress transmitted the, the new Constitution. All of these states voted to ratify the new Constitution. These states, in the order of their ratification, were Delaware, which is why they call themselves the first state. Pennsylvania was second. Now, Benjamin Franklin really wanted Pennsylvania to be the first state to ratify the new Constitution. But unfortunately, some timing issues with the dates their legislature could meet put him in back of Delaware. New Jersey came in third, followed by Georgia at the end of 1787. So at the end of 1787, we have four of the nine states needed for ratification. However, at that time, only one large state, Pennsylvania, had ratified. Connecticut comes in in January of 1788. Washington believes ratification of the new constitution by New York and Virginia is going to be a challenge, as these states had a large anti-federalist contingency. However, Massachusetts also became an unexpected challenge, with their ratification passing in February of 1788 by only a 19-vote margin out of a total of 355 votes cast. This very tight vote in Massachusetts, Chris, emboldened the Anti-Federalists, who now thought 
there could be a chance of not getting the needed nine total states to ratify the new constitution. So now the arguments of the Federalists for ratification and the arguments of the Anti-Federalists for not ratifying become critical and the most important event within this journey towards ratification. True. Anti-Federalists had some very practical concerns and objections to this new form of government. They wanted to alter some of the powers between the federal government and the state governments because they were concerned that this newly created government had too much power. They saw this federal government becoming a distant and irresponsible government, and they saw it reducing the power and significance of the states. Similar to the Federalists, the Anti-Federalists were also highly educated men, and they knew that, to date, most Republican governments had not survived. As such, they questioned why this proposed government structure would not meet the same fate. They also wanted to directly protect individual liberties from the newly created federal government, and they wanted to do this through a written Bill of Rights. In particular, they did not like the wording in the Constitution that came after the list of powers to be given to the federal government that said, quote, and all powers necessary and proper, unquote, in executing the powers given to the government. Remember, the powers of the executive branch were supposed to be listed and limited. They also wanted term limits on the presidency, as they feared without limits, this could lead to some type of autocracy. Washington, for example, would voluntarily refuse to serve a third time, but it wasn't until 1951 that we added the 21st Amendment to the Constitution actually limiting the president to serving two terms. The anti-federalist Chris had some brilliant arguments and some legitimate arguments, and they were made up of people that had a lot of prestige. I mean, as you mentioned, Richard Henry Lee was the author of the Lee Resolution, which was the document that gave us our Declaration of Independence from Great Britain. So the federalists needed to combat the arguments of the anti-federalists. Alexander Hamilton, who's from New York and a large proponent of ratifying the new constitution, sees a large challenge with the state of New York ratifying the constitution. And his opponents, the anti-federalists in that area, have already written articles published in newspapers against ratification. So Hamilton decides that a series of essays need to be written for the public to understand the newly drafted Constitution and the how and why behind the structure of the government created in Philadelphia so that citizens can then hopefully be in favor of ratifying the new Constitution. Hamilton first enlists John Jay to assist him in writing these essays that will be published in a newspaper under the pseudonym Publius, which was very common at the time to use these pseudonyms so that people could focus on the content of the argument and not the personality behind the argument. But Jay falls ill after only writing a few of these essays, and so then Hamilton turns to Madison to help him. Now, interestingly, Madison is 36 years old at this time, and Hamilton is 30 years old. 
Political scholars view the Federalist Papers as the most important documents that exist regarding our Constitution. Why? Because they were written by individuals involved in the process that created the Constitution. And most importantly, these writings discuss the detailed thought process that underpins the reasoning for the structure of the government that was created. The Federalist Papers are viewed as a magnificent body of work as they directly address the challenges considered by the delegates at the Constitutional Convention in establishing a Republican government. True, a monumental task. Uh, it is in Federalist Papers 1, 9, and 10 that have been most widely read as they speak to the broader question raised by the Anti-Federalists of whether a Republican government can survive and whether a republic of the expansive geographic size of the proposed United States of America can survive. These three essays effectively tie together the strong reasoning of the Federalists as to why this newly created American government can survive. In Federalist number one, Hamilton begins with the big picture. He asks citizens to ponder the existential question of America, quote, whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force, end quote. It's important to note that in 1787, there were no surviving Republican governments that had been created from reflection and choice. Rather, the constitutions of the few republics in place at that time had evolved by either accident or force. Thus, if ratified, this new American constitution would be unique. Chris, Federalist Papers 9 and 10 are also viewed as groundbreaking in their thought process and arguments. In Federalist 9, Hamilton addresses the anti-Federalist concerns about a Republican government, how historically most do not survive. Hamilton acknowledges this. He says, yes, in the past, Republican governments have not survived. However, he argues, quote, things are different now, end quote, and we have learned from the past, and now we have, quote, an improved science of politics, end quote. In particular, he goes on to say that we have now learned how to better model a Republican government. We know that we need a separation of powers. We need legislative checks and balances. We need judicial independence. And we need representatives that are chosen by the people. And then he goes on to say that the government structure we've created, our model, incorporates all of these elements. So Madison's famous essay on factions is contained in Federalist Number 10. First, Madison defines a faction as a majority or minority of the whole who are united by some common impulse of passion or interest adverse to the right of other citizens. In his discussion of factions, Madison sees majority factions being the most troublesome. First, Madison makes the argument that the envisioned Republican government under the new Constitution 
which is one directed by chosen representatives, versus a direct democracy where the majority of citizens will rule, is better suited to not being affected by a majority faction whose interests or desires would erode the rights or liberties of other citizens. First, Madison argues that representative government allows for a refinement of public view as a body of representatives are better positioned to, quote, best discern the true interest of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice it to temporary or partial considerations, end quote. Next, Madison admits this doesn't mean the majority factions of sinister designs could not end up having some influence or control. But he goes on to say, quote, the question resulting is whether small or extensive republics are the most favorable to the election of the proper guardians of the public well-being. And it is clearly decided in favor of the latter. And he supports his conclusion by essentially making a mathematical argument. He points out that while factions have caused the demise in the smaller geographic republics, the conditions that exist with larger geographies will cure the problem of majority factions. Because, he argues, the larger you become in geographic size and population, the greater a diversity of interests you will get. And as you get bigger, it will become more difficult to establish a majority within the whole population with a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens because you're taking in a greater variety of parties and interests. And, quote, you make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens, end quote. And again, quoting, hence it clearly appears that the same advantage which a republic has over a democracy in controlling the effects of faction is enjoyed by a large over a small republic, end quote. He concludes, quoting once more, in the extent and proper structure of the Union, therefore, we beheld a Republican remedy for the diseases most incident to Republican government. Madison's writing and theory about factions in Federalist 10 places him among the most brilliant political scholars to date. The ratification journey through the rest of 1788, now that many of the arguments have been aired in the public with the Anti-Federalists and the Federalists is as follows. Maryland ratifies the new Constitution in April, South Carolina ratifies in May, and New Hampshire ratifies on June 21st, 1788, becoming the ninth state to ratify before New York and Virginia have held their conventions. So what really happens now politically once the ninth state is secured and the new government is going into effect among those who ratified? If you are New York or Virginia, one of the two big states that haven't yet ratified, what are your options now? Are you willing to go it alone and have the threat of being gobbled up by a larger country? Or are you going to join the group and ratify the Constitution? Virginia ratifies on June 25th by a vote of 89 to 79, 
and New York ratifies on July 26th with a vote very close of 30 to 27. Once a total of nine states voted to ratify the new constitution, the planning began for the states to convene and each to determine their method for selecting electors and for a date to be set for the electors in each state to vote for the president of the newly created executive branch of government. At this time, the electors for each state were to cast two votes each, but only one of their votes could be for a person from their own state. The person getting the most votes would be the president, and the person getting the second highest number of votes would be the vice president. Almost everyone agreed that Washington should serve as president, and so the real voting issue came down to who was going to be the vice president. And with some political maneuvering, largely on the part of Alexander Hamilton, John Adams was elected as vice president. While the permanent location for the capital of the newly created federal government had not yet been determined, Washington agreed to be installed as president in a ceremony in New York City, which was the current location of the Continental Congress of the soon-to-be-retired Confederation of States. Washington takes his oath of office on April 30th, 1789. Chris North Carolina had rejected ratification, but they reconvened again in November of 1789 and ratified. And then Rhode Island grudgingly ratified in May of 1790 by a vote of 34 to 32. Thus, North Carolina and Rhode Island were not part of the United States when Washington was inaugurated as the first president. In our next podcasts, we're going to talk about the presidencies of Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison.